Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we've got something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Lautman, Mosca, Neal & Company is looking for a graphic production artist in Washington, D.C. HubSpot is looking for a content designer. They're looking for candidates in Cambridge, Massachusetts and in Toronto, though they are open to remote candidates in the U.S. and in Ontario, Canada. Design B&B is looking for a senior project designer in Chicago, Illinois. Constructive is looking for a senior UX designer. This is a remote position. Coforma is looking for a senior software engineer. This is a remote position. And American Express is looking for a product manager in the United States. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast. A weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. You know, building your online brand has never been more important, especially nowadays. And all of that begins with your domain name. Sure, you can have a great Twitter profile. You can have a great Instagram profile. But your domain name for your website, that's really what it boils down to. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Andre Elijah, award-winning immersive director, creative technologist, and the founder of Andre Elijah Immersive. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Andre Elijah, and I'm an immersive director working in augmented reality and virtual reality. How has the year been going for you so far? I can hear from in the background that you probably have started off this year with a pretty big announcement. <laughs> yeah, my uh, my twins are born in January. So, yeah, I guess you can hear them in the background. I've got noise canceling headphones on. No, no, no. You're, you're all good. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a shift. But no, it's been good. It's been good. How has it been kind of juggling work and family? Are you sort of finding that balance now? <laughs> no, it requires a, a really good partner that can take care of things on the home front while I uh, work maniacally at all hours of the day and night. <laughs> well, let's jump into that work a little bit. You have a studio, Andre Elijah Immersive, and you just recently celebrated your five-year anniversary. Congratulations yeah. on that. Thank you, sir. Tell me more about it. It's basically a studio where we build everything we want to see in the world. There's multiple parts to the company. We're building games. We see, you know, games as the major catalyst to enable these new mediums and platforms. And so we want to be there and kind of build the content that we think will sell units and sell headsets and make this, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality future pervasive. And then on the flip side, we also work with a number of agencies and brands doing marketing projects, ad campaigns, that sort of thing, building interactive elements of that or activations, augmented reality activations, metaverse activations, all kinds of stuff. So we're constantly busy, probably a little bit too busy, some would say, but no complaints. I mean, this year has been absolutely mental. I think I'm really lucky in that I was able to survive this long in this industry. A lot of people thought that VR in particular was going to pop off multiple times already, and it didn't. And really kind of found its footing during the pandemic. There's a lot of things that kind of came together, you know, everything from 
Oculus Quest 2, or I guess now Meta Quest 2, everyone being at home with the pandemic and needing something to do. Mm-hmm. The rise of VR fitness was really a, another thing that kind of popped off and helped sell headsets and find a, a user base. And so, you know, all these things kind of coalescing at the same time allowed for me to still be here and be in business all these years later. Definitely one of the lucky ones in that regard. I mean, VR as a technology, I feel like has been trying to pop off since at least, I guess, like at least the 90s, right? Like the mid 90s has tried to gain some footing. I mean, the first and this is probably weird, but the first thing I think of when I think of VR is VR Troopers. That like really (laughs) horrible, horrible Um, show. Yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, it was the basically a (laughs) ripoff of the Power Rangers because there was the three VR Troopers. I remember that. There was a TV station called the New VR, and they carried <laughs> VR troopers. Yeah, it was a station based out of Barrie, Ontario. Oh, yes. wow. Yeah. So, interesting thing. You remember the black guy that was on there that played JB? Yes. He works in gaming. I've had him on the show before. What? Yeah. Yeah. That is wild. <laughs> he told me all the, like, behind the scenes. Like, that show is so chopped up. It's like the video form of, like... I don't know, like Scrapple or something. It's like a whole bunch of stuff taken from different shows that they cobbled together. And it's wild. Like, it's not even from one show. It's like from five different shows that they put together to make that show. Because they have like different outfits in like VR grid versus when they're fighting the monsters. And it's so funny. There's a video on YouTube. If you want to check it out, there's a video where the cast got drunk and did like a voiceover of one of the episodes. It's so funny. It's so funny. That is awesome. <laughs> this makes me really happy to hear it. I'm not going to lie. Cause it's funny. Cause no one knows what the hell VR troopers is. You can mention power Rangers and everyone knows that occasionally you can mention masked rider and people will get that. Cause it's just common rider. You mentioned VR troopers. No one ever knows what the hell you're talking about. So, I mean, you made me really happy right now. Yeah, I mean, and but to to kind of go back to my earlier point, like VR has really tried to like pop off since then. You had Nintendo with the failed Virtual Boy. You even <laughs> yeah. had video games that had Virtua or Virtual in it, like Virtua Fighter. Mm-hmm. There's been all yeah. these attempts to try to make virtual reality really a big thing, and it seems like well, as you even, said now, even the Metal Gear Solid VR missions, right? And I think it was like Metal Gear Solid Two. It yeah. was all these like simulated missions that were quote unquote in VR. But even now, as you said, there's been this perfect storm of like, I guess, the pandemic and the technology becoming at a enough of a consumer price point where it's starting to become commonplace now. Yep, 100%. So with your studio, like what does a typical day look like for you? I don't really think there is a typical day. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's everything. So, I mean, right now we've got multiple VR games in production you know, one is kind of midway-ish, one is at the tail end, and we're about to go into certification. You know, we're working on a number of augmented reality projects and advertising campaigns and things like that. So every day is kind of a mishmash of touching base with my team to see where things are at, play testing our products and projects and kind of giving some feedback there, investigating new technology that we might be called to use in a campaign of some sort or an activation pitching projects that we that we ultimately want to build and do you know it's it's a mishmash every day starts early and it goes late but there's really no set formula just kind of whatever we get time to do yeah now we're talking about vr virtual reality which again i'm pretty sure most of the audience knows about but i also just kind of want to level set the conversation because there's a lot of terms when we talk about these immersive experiences that get thrown around like AR, XR, the metaverse, you know, can you kind of give us a couple of of definitions of terms that are sort of widely used in this space? Yeah, I mean, the three that I use are AR, VR, and regrettably metaverse. (laughs) Those are are three biggest ones. XR, I kind of throw out the window because that just opens up its own can of worms. So augmented reality is basically digital information overlaid on top of the physical world. So, you know, whether that's virtual screens that exist in your room, virtual pets that exist in your space and, you know, navigate your space that you interact with, things like that. Virtual reality is an entirely virtual space. So you put on a headset, there is no pass through, you're not seeing the real world. You are immersed in a fully virtual world with virtual interactions and virtual environments. And then we've got metaverse, which is basically a think ready player one 
basically networked experiences with other people in a virtual space. It doesn't necessarily have to be in VR. You know, you could make a case that Fortnite is a metaverse of its own with the way that people are able to express themselves with various designs and skins and way you can customize yourself and you're communicating with people and you have shared tasks and goals or you can just hang out remotely together. I think that's kind of the perfect example of a metaverse. And so those are really the three that I kind of try and stick to because otherwise you get way too in the weeds with all the different terminology and you lose people. Yeah. Why do you regrettably say metaverse? <laughs> You know, ever since Zuckerberg changed the company's name, Facebook's name to Meta, everyone's been jumping on the metaverse bandwagon. I think in some ways it's good that we have a shared language finally, because if you've been working in this space for years, the terminology got pretty hardcore, right? You had AR, you had VR, you have XR, and then there's a whole debate online as to what the hell XR even stands for and where the origins of it come from. That's like literally a Twitter battle every other day. And then we've got, you know, spatial computing which magically try to use to kind of differentiate themselves. And we have Microsoft with mixed reality. And so there's all these terms and everyone has their own branded version of the same thing, which made, you know, having that common language kind of difficult. So here's Zuckerberg, you know, blowing $10 billion a year, whatever, to make the dream happen. He renames the company Meta in the spirit of the metaverse. And so everyone now is using metaverse for everything. But I just think if you're building this content, you know, you're building real-time content with that, with networked interactions and expressiveness and personalization, all things like that. Now we have everyone saying that Web3 projects are all the metaverse. You buy an NFT and it's for the metaverse, even though you can't use that content anywhere else. I saw an article the other day about an audio metaverse. And it's like, you oh, know, God. Every, Everyone is just, you know, if you do a Google search every day, it's just nothing but metaverse this, metaverse that. And it's most of it's bullshit. If people are selling you stuff that will be used in the metaverse, 99% of it can't be used anywhere because there's no interoperability with any of the platforms. So it's, you know, kind of disingenuous, I find, when people use the term metaverse. I think it's great because it grounds the conversation to a degree. And, you know, if anyone with real understanding will know that we're talking about, you know, networked multi-user experiences that are digital. But for the most part, I think it's become a bit of a hype train thing. And I'm waiting for it to kind of die off again. I mean, it sounds like, you know, Meta, Facebook, whatever, like they kind of muddied the waters a bit by calling what they're doing the metaverse. Because right after that, everyone, of course, is asking, well, what is the metaverse? But they're associating the metaverse with Meta and think that everything metaverse related has to do with Meta, the company. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I was watching an interview this morning on The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne and DJ Envy and Angela Yee. And they had uh, Ja Rule on there. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he's building a Madison Square Garden for the metaverse. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> what now? And so <laughs> then he said, like, you know, two sentences later, he had said that he was building inside of the platform called the Sandbox, which is a crypto platform. But, you know, one Web3 real-time product isn't the metaverse, right? Mm -hmm. It's... We need a certain level of interoperability between the different platforms, and we need to be able to jump to and from them easily before I would ever consider it to be the metaverse. But it's like everyone, you know, it's common parlance now, right? And to the point where 46-year-old rappers are, are dropping the metaverse now in interviews. So Right. It's funny. Um, at, at work where I'm at now, we're, we just released a print magazine, and like our next issue that we're doing, the theme for it is Web3. It's geared towards product communities. And so we're going to, I'm trying to find like what that intersection is going to be between web three and product communities and stuff. But we were initially going to call it metaverse because of that kind of large encompassing, I guess, general definition of it as so many people jump on the bandwagon. But I think narrowing it to web three kind of hopefully will help with that. But I wanted yeah. to, you know, kind of get those definitions because I think that along with like NFTs and DAOs and all that stuff gets thrown in together and people just get confused. And I almost feel like that's on purpose. Yeah. I mean, I think the running joke right now is if you want to raise a bunch of money, maybe not right now because things are on a downturn, but like certainly a couple of months ago, if you want to raise money, you just say Web3 Metaverse and Dow and a pitch deck and all of a sudden you're valued at $50 million, <laughs> right? And I mean, I was even thinking about doing some stuff in the crypto space and I talked to a couple of investors and honestly, dude, I didn't have anything solid. Like it was pretty shaky, the idea that I had. And, you know, the investors were like, yeah, your company, if you start it right now, it's valued at $25 million and I can help you raise $5 million tomorrow. And it's like, say what? Like, dude, I don't even have a deck. I don't have a company. What are you talking about? 
<laughs> I felt a little bit dirty uh, having those conversations. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep on doing this VR AR thing uh, for a minute and, and just ride this out. But you know, that was the thing, right? You throw enough of those uh, enough of those terms around in a deck, and you got a really big valuation. And chances are, Andreessen Horowitz was going to jump in and value at a billion dollars. Yeah, it's just you know those things that was happening. So it's interesting. So I was going to ask this question. I mean, I'll still ask it, but I can't help but notice in your profile picture, you have these kind of Snapchat AR spectacles. And that's one way that people can experience these immersive experiences. You also mentioned MetaQuest 2. Are there other ways that people can start to like get a sense of what these immersive experiences are about? Yeah, I mean, so in the case of the spectacles, those are very much developer only. They're uh, or creator only, as, as Snap's terminology would be. So there's only you know a handful of people in the world, maybe like six, seven hundred people in the world that have spectacles right now. They're early. They're very cool. I love using them, but they're really for us to kind of figure out what the capabilities in a lightweight headset need to be for augmented reality to to be real and and to go mainstream. So there's a lot of dialogue between people like myself and Snap to kind of eke out the most performance and and have an understanding of how we want to use these things in the first place. I think, you know, in the coming years, they'll hit mainstream and you'll be able to buy them. But right now, you know, those glasses are very much for developers to kind of spell out what the future is going to be like in terms of you know what can you use today to get a sense of what all this stuff is going to be like i mean snapchat is huge when it comes to ar there's hundreds of millions of active users right now using ar multiple times a day so a lot of the marketing projects that my team engages on are all snap based just because they have a high number of users the retention is really high and people just love using the platform and so my team has built projects for DirecTV and AT&T and Google and probably some others uh, that I can't even think of right now, all on Snap. And typically, our when we get a request for breaking down the project, it always starts off with, you know, we're going to target every platform. We're going to do Spark AR and we're going to do Web AR so you can hit the stuff in a web browser. And we're going to do Snap and maybe even a dedicated app. And, you know, two weeks into any of these processes, they're like, we're just going to go to use Snap because they have, you know, the highest amount of users, the highest amount of retention and the capabilities of the platform are dope. So I think if you want to experience AR right now, Snap is probably the way to go on your phone. If you want to experience virtual reality, MetaQuest 2 is basically the best headset you can get. Best platform you can get It's a few hundred bucks. You can go to Amazon or Best Buy and pick them up and bring them home. And it's honestly the best experience that you can get right now. All in one standalone headset. You don't need a computer which I think VR was really held back for a while by the fact that you needed a gaming computer for the longest time to be able mm-hmm. to be able to drive these things. And so here we have a standalone device that's basically an Android phone on your face. I mean, you get really compelling content, right? You get, if you want to work on your fitness, you got Supernatural, which is probably the best workout app ever. And I'm really into it for the boxing. We've got, if you're into shooters, you know, they remade Resident Evil 4 in VR and it's it's only on the available on the quest and it's probably the best VR game I've played next to Half-Life Alex. And so, you know, you've got all these games that are that are being able to run in a standalone form factor. And then if you want some of those PC only experiences, then you can connect with a cable or even wirelessly to your PC and have it be a PC headset as well. So I think, you know, if you if you want to get into AR, it's gonna be Snapchat on your phone for the time being. And if you want to get into VR, then it's gonna be MetaQuest. And even with the Quest, they're enabling augmented reality and mixed reality experiences now, too. It's a black and white pass-through, but all your content is color. It's really compelling. It's wow. really compelling. I had a client that bought me... Well, I, actually, I had requested him to get me a MetaQuest 2 instead of paying me a deposit. It's still in my closet. I haven't broken it out yet. I need okay, to, get, well, I need to you, give it a spin. If you open it up, what you need to, we can play together and you can add me and I will I will onboard you. That's nice. Promise, right? <laughs> now, you kind of mentioned... All right. <laughs> you mentioned these earlier clients of, you know, that you've worked with. You said Snap. You mentioned just to, for some of the others. I'm looking at your website here. Uber, Sony, Drake, Beyonce. Like when you're working with these brands, are you seeing any like specific trends when it comes to the type of immersive experiences they want to create? I mean, early days, VR was very much driven by hype. So you basically wanted to have a very basic project. Keep in mind the capabilities, you know, when VR, this wave of VR was popping off a few years ago, you know, five years ago, the capabilities weren't really as fleshed out as they are now, right? So it was basically you could look around in a headset 
if you're lucky you had motion track controllers, but you're still tethered to a PC that wasn't very powerful, especially when it was driving, you know, a stereoscopic two views at 90 frames per second. So there, you're limited in what you could do. And early days, it was basically, let's build this thing, attach a celeb or a big brand to it and like get press. And so basically you're building projects just to get press because there really was no market to make money. So you're getting paid to build the experiences and your metric was how many views and how many articles did you get? And I think, you know, that did a lot of harm to the industry because we weren't creating anything really of value that stood the test of time. People weren't getting much utility out of it and it hurt the space. And that's why when I say I'm one of the lucky ones that's still around, I mean, 90% of my peers have died off in this industry to go to adjacent industries or something completely different because there just was no way to make money in VR for the longest time until, you know, the last couple of years with, with the advent of the Quest and Quest 2. So I think now we're at a point where we have enough data and we have enough users that we can make a go of this if you do it right and really create value for people, whether it's through, you know, an entertaining experience like a game or something that provides utility like a workout app that actually helps people with fitness. Maybe it's a meditation app that helps with people's personal wellness and that sort of thing. So I think we're at a point now where we're trying to identify what are the opportunities to create value for people as opposed to what's this flashy headline that I can get with a celeb or a big brand attached just for shits and giggles. And mm -hmm. it's a very different way of working. That's why I pitch a lot of projects because I don't necessarily have all these clients coming to me, but it's like, hey, I see an opportunity because, you know, I'm working with the platform. I have some insight as to the numbers or percentage splits of who's engaged in what kind of content. And I see an opportunity here if we do it right. And I think that's the key thing is doing it right, because you don't want shovelware. You don't want to announce something that, you know, never gets out the door and you ultimately don't want to fail the platform as much shit as they take. Meta's done a really great job in building a platform that succeeds for the developers in that when you know that if you manage to get to that store and they push you in front of their audience, you'll live to fight another day. You won't have to close up shop. You can pay your mortgage. Everything is good. And I think, you know, part of that responsibility is creating content that stands the test of time that shows up and does well for its audience. And ultimately, you know, I say this every time we take on a project, we got to come correct. Right. Yeah. I don't want to build a thing that we ship on day one and we forget about it. I don't want to ship something that people forget about. It's like, come correct, create value for the platform, create value for the users, and then identify the next opportunity, you know, rinse and repeat. But the key thing is come correct. I'm glad that you mentioned shovelware because, first of all, that immediately took my mind back to like late 90s, early 2000s, when companies were just starting to get on the Internet and they were making yeah. just like trash just to say that they had some sort of presence like Pepsi World or or <laughs> something like that where you go and it's like oh you can view our latest commercial why would I want to view a commercial it wasn't any sort of intent behind it I guess outside of it being just another commercial another ad but I think that was also because brands then this was such a new technology and a new space they didn't know how to operate within it I would imagine now with the metaverse maybe companies are a little smarter about the type of experiences that they want to have? Maybe? Possibly? Mm -hmm. Not really? <laughs> I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. But, <laughs> no, I mean, there's group chats with people, and we see the latest headlines every now and then from The Verge or Engadget, mm -hmm. and we trade it around. We say, why does this even exist? Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that going around still. That's kind of the nature of the beast to a degree, right? you got these huge multi-billion dollar companies that are trying to create platforms and they need some, you know, they want some big names attached and the people that have access to those big names. It's the traditional agency model in a lot of ways, right? Where agencies aren't really run by creative people, right? There's mm -hmm. a million levels of abstraction involved and everyone takes a meeting on every little thing and it's designed by committee and none of it is breathtaking, none of it is new, none of it's innovative and the end product hurts. Right. So I think a lot of these projects and products that come out that are associated with a big agency and a big brand, you know, you can probably guess that it's not going to be the greatest thing ever. But if you have a really small, nimble team that's dope at what they do and they've studied the space and, and they've worked at it, they put in those hours and they get a hold of something valuable like a brand or IP, then they're going to knock it out of the park. 
that's been the game with you know everything from the internet to you know we we saw what happened in the last year with NFTs and Web three and all this stuff. You know, there's a you know, did we really need a Matrix avatar project that's basically just a rebranded version of Unreal's MetaHumans? No, I don't think we needed that. So I think you know VR AR none of it's really all that different. I think you just need the indies kind of lay the groundwork for everyone else to follow. And you just, you know, make sure that the Indies get their flowers and they get their paychecks so they can live another day. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense because what you are seeing are a lot of like small studios and independent developers kind of trying to stake their claim. And now the larger brands are kind of trying to rush in. And now that they see that, oh, this is something that I think we can be a part of in some way. Now they want to try to rush in and, and get a piece of it. So that, that makes sense. But you know, some of these considerations you're talking about, I mean, there's so much to think about with, quote unquote, the metaverse. There's virtual well-being. There's like economics around like NFTs and stuff. There's intellectual property. Like, how do you factor in these other types of considerations within your work? Do you think about that stuff? I mean, no, I try and limit the scope of what I do to kind of exclude all that or else I wouldn't get anything done all day. Okay. You know, our business right now on the games front We've got a couple original games that we're working on, and we've kind of become the masters of porting games. So, you know, we have Mm. access to the IP. We don't have to worry about any of that. So we're in a good spot there. And then when it comes to the agency side, I mean, obviously, we're working with the brands and agencies. So IP, again, isn't really a concern for us because they're coming to us and saying, use our name and do this thing. So I think, you know, the way I've kind of tackled this, we kind of get around all of that. I don't think I have, as well as the studio is doing, I don't think I have enough dollars for all the lawyers that would be involved with everything you're mentioning. (laughs) That makes sense. I mean, you know, let the big companies sort that out. That's what they're paying for, right? Exactly. Yeah. I love that you've got this portion on your site with rejected projects. Why did you decide to show those? Yeah. So it's weird, man. So a lot of what people do when they're indie is build products and projects and prototype things. But if you take a look at their portfolios, they only have the finished projects, the sexy ones, the ones that shipped. And you never know about what happened in those three months or four months between them shipping stuff. You never know what the backstory is. You don't know the genesis of so many of these things. And I found myself for a while not shipping projects and doing a lot of prototyping and having a lot of discussions. And I just wanted an avenue to kind of show it off and put it up as in a way that's like, hey, this is not final. It's not shipping. It's not representing anyone. But these are the things that we're thinking about. These are the conversations that we're having behind closed doors. The people that we're talking to are probably people that you would want to want a product from or at least a conversation with to figure out what this would look like. And ultimately, I just said, you know, one day, fuck it. I'm just going to post all this stuff because I'm sitting on all of these decks and all of these ideas and all these email threads and conversations that I've had. Why shouldn't people know about it? You know, they're not secret. I did the work to come up with the idea and get in front of the right people and pitch them. So maybe people should know that I'm not just kind of sitting around playing Fortnite all day, but I'm not shipping stuff, but I'm actually trying to get things done. I'm trying to build alignment uh, behind the scenes with big brands and stuff. And so just kind of decide one day, I got enough material, let's do it. And to be fair, you know, I'm probably showing only like a tenth of the rejected pitches that are, you know, pretty decent. Just a matter of, you know, I need to find the time to uh, to throw all that stuff up. So I think we've got, what do we have in there, dude? Uh, we've got like some Beeple stuff. We've got Tidal and Rock Nation, who I was talking to for a while, they're doing some stuff. I think we got Deadness in there. So, I mean, there's enough cool ideas and content in there that it just kind of made sense to put it out there and say, you know, hey, like, yeah, I know all these people. And if we have something strong, I can, you know, take an idea back to them as well. Yeah. Maybe we'll do something in the future. So and it's, it's probably also just a learning experience, hopefully, for people that are like, oh, we just got pitched on a similar project. Maybe we don't do it this way or something like that. So it's kind of a learning tool. Yeah, 100 percent. Now, as these immersive technologies become more readily available. I mean, now we've got, like you said, Snap Spectacles, we got MetaQuest 2. I'm sure there are going to be more peripherals that come down the line in the years to come. What do you think is going to like set each experience apart as these technologies become more readily available? I think part of it is understanding the tech and you know how to make it work and understanding the limitations and polish. 
you know, everything that you do, like, you know, like I said before, you got to come correct. So when we're creating these different experiences, you know, like some of them are games and some of them are applications, mixed reality applications that add a layer of utility on top of your physical space, right? Your home or whatever. I think user experience is really important. Onboarding users that have never touched a headset before is really important in letting them feel comfortable and getting them to a point of comfort where, you know, they can share with their friends, hey, put on this headset and try this thing out. We need to kind of stop getting away from these high-end technologies as, you know, these this kind of tinkerer space or this hardcore technology space and realize that's for everyone. So I think polish and onboarding and taking the ego out of it is really important to kind of grow that adoption. Mm. Now, we've talked a lot about your work. We've talked for the past 30 minutes about your work. Let's kind of switch back to the real world. Let's learn more about Andre Elijah, the person, the man. Tell me about where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Toronto, middle-class family, parents working their asses off to uh, to give me a future. Kind of initially wanted to be a child actor and got into that for a little bit. And that kind of kicked off my whole film industry thing. So I did a lot of auditions, was in some commercials and a couple small movies and that sort of thing growing up. And really loved the energy of being on set, really loved being creative with people. You know, so that, I think, kind of set the tone for the rest of my career and kind of seeing how people collaborated and worked under really stressful situations Mm -hmm. on a set to create something really, really dope. And kind of grew out of that a little bit. Just the the auditions were a lot with everything I had going on at school. I had a lot of extracurriculars and bands and drama and all that sort of stuff. Kind of aged out. And then uh, there was an opportunity when I was in, I think, grade eight, seven or eight, uh, to do what was called an options program. And I sucked at sports. So it was basically an opportunity to do more creative things. So on top of doing, you know, debate, there was an opportunity to uh, be part of the the film club. And that piqued my interest immediately. You know, my first time shooting and editing, it was a, you know, my first camera that I used was a Canon GL1 camera, which is a three CCD or three chip semi-pro camera from Canon. And my first edit suite was, I think, Final Cut 3 on a Power Mac G4 with, like, you know, a mini DV capture deck and external monitors and all that sort of stuff. So I started, they threw me in the deep end, and I, I got to play with the pro stuff first. Wow. Uh, it was, like, probably, like, seven or eight years before I ever touched iMovie after I started in Final <laughs> Cut. You know, I found that whole process of shooting projects and editing them and taking through post-production really, really interesting and fascinating. I picked it up quick. That just kind of became my thing. And I was always a geek and loved playing with computers. So the fact that I could, you know, create the stuff that people would watch and enjoy while geeking out on these, like, really hardcore computers was like a dream come true. A lot of the older students, you know, I was grade 7, grade 8, and a lot of the older students that were in grade, you know, 11, 12... When they graduated, they went off to work in the big leagues. You know, we had some guys that went off to New York and worked on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. We had a couple guys go off to work at visual effects houses. We had some that went off to China and worked in documentary films there. And so I guess, you know, they all kind of took me under their wing and I got to kind of see life through their eyes for a while. And they onboarded me to their projects. So I was this young kid that was getting really shitty duties on their projects, but it was dope. And eventually... I got good at editing, so I became an editor, freelance editor, while I was still, you know, in high school and all that. You know, I ended up working with Rail and Television Hong Kong. I was editing some of their documentaries, and a buddy of mine that I worked with in the corporate world, uh, we were both moonlighting in the film industry. He ended up going to the American Film Institute. He became a directing fellow there, and I edited the three short films that got him accepted into the American Film Institute. So, I mean, you know, that was just, that kind of set me up, and then... I worked at a um, my first agency ever. I worked at as a video editor initially, uh, kind of cutting together demo reels for them and content for their clients. And then uh, they turned me into a Flash developer before Flash got killed off by Apple. Uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs in one letter. They turned me more into a dev than anyone else and kind of let me see what happened. You know, when you press a button and something bounces on a screen, they did that. And uh, I think in a big way, kind of set me up for where I'm at now. So you kind of got introduced into tech at an early age, but through media. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's I really just always loved the creative process and being able to geek out to kind of pull that process together. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. You see a lot of stuff and 
Yeah, I think the uh, the common thread in my career though has been you know being on the cutting edge of technology. So whether it was the you know film and and using janky ass versions of Final Cut Pro on these ridiculously powerful computers. You know, I did a stint at a Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, so I was a systems analyst for them, uh, working on some hardcore service stuff. Years later, after film and agency stuff, working in AR and VR again, cutting edge of technology. So I think that's always been kind of the constant in my life and in my career. And now you went to Ryerson University, which I think by the time this interview comes out, people know it's now Toronto Metropolitan University. But you majored in fine and studio arts as part of their new media program there. Like, what was your time like there? It wasn't great. Um, (laughs) You know, so, I mean, I went to I went to Ryerson because the founder of my first agency, he was actually in my batch, the first batch of new media graduates at Ryerson. That guy has always been like my hero and I love him to death. Uh, shout out to Spence, Spencer Saunders. I kind of want to be like him. So I went to Ryerson and learned, uh, you know, hop into the new media program over there. And it was very different than when he went to school. I was one of those people, man. I like doing stuff. I don't really like the theory of things. I like getting my hands dirty. It just didn't click for me, which is fine. Maybe it clicked for some others, but, you know, I like getting my hands dirty. I like building stuff. I like doing the work. So sitting in a class and watching someone code on a projector doesn't really teach me that much. Um, Hearing about a VHS fine artwork from 20 years prior when, you know, we're doing stuff online didn't really connect with me. It's just one of those things. I think that's been, you know, another constant in my life, too. Like, I just like doing. I don't really like like the instruction, right? I just yeah. like getting my hands dirty with the code and, and seeing how things react when I change things around. So, I mean, Ryerson wasn't really my bag. First couple years, I think I was in school full-time. And then the last couple years, I was working down the street at Canada Pension while I was doing my classes. So, Canada mm-hmm. Pension was really cool. They let me, you know, slip off to class when I needed to for an hour or two here. And then go back to work. So, you know, I start my day early. I'd end it kind of later in the day, probably five, six o'clock and skip out for instead of taking lunches or whatever, I'd just go to class. Um, So at least, you know, my last couple of years, I had real work that I was doing to kind of balance it all out. But yeah, I mean, and go get your degree. That's the thing that gives you credibility, (laughs) I guess. Um, But I I can honestly say, you know, at this point in my career, I don't think I've ever looked back at Ryerson and been like, wow, they really, you know, they set me up for this or you know, yeah. everything that I did there led to this. God, no. You know, it was me just kind of downloading Unreal Engine when they announced Unreal Engine 4 and yeah. um, being able to to play with those content examples and, and build my own stuff uh, that really kind of got me here. So. That's interesting. I have, like, I guess similar experiences to when I was in college. I mean, I would imagine that college is still kind of set up this way where your first two years, you're just, like, slammed with classes because you have to take, like, your humanities and all the general Mm -hmm. stuff before you can really get into your major. And then once you get into your major, there's not so many classes, hopefully. So you have more time just outside of, of school to kind of, you know, do things like my, my first year at Morehouse, I was like, I was ready to go. I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And I stuck it out because eventually I did like have part-time jobs. I actually uh, started working in the, computer science lab at Morehouse. And that's kind of how I got into, not necessarily how I got into technology. I was into it before then, but I got to spend so much time in the computer lab, like teaching myself HTML, basic JavaScript, et cetera, reverse engineering web pages, like figuring that stuff out on my own that had nothing to do with what I was actually learning in like my major courses, you know, So I think, you know, if I look back at my time, kind of similar to what you're saying, like, I don't know if I would really recommend it. I mean, I could say like, oh, I went to Morehouse and that means something to people Mm -hmm. in the world. To me, eh, it was okay. It was all right. I got my degree. I got out. No debt. You know, I can I can (laughs) say that proudly. You You did it. We had our graduation outside. They normally have the graduations outside and it stormed on my graduation like lightning hitting electronics stormed and i'm like sitting there in my cap and gown drenched because the person next to me had an umbrella and he wouldn't let me like get under the umbrella because he's like i don't know who you are which our name our last name just happened to be together in the alphabet like get away from me like yeah i get what you're saying (laughs) graduation though i skipped mine so yeah that tells you everything (laughs) (laughs) so after after ryerson you 
started out as a freelancer. You were working as a production artist. You were doing a lot of post-production work. Was that kind of where like the education for you really set in, like doing the work? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, but even what I was doing half the time, there there was no template for there was no real learning other than doing it. So, I mean, I was fortunate enough that I got my hands on the first couple red cameras that ever landed in Canada. So for the people. Who don't oh, wow. Know, yeah. So that was a big deal. So but for people who don't know, I mean, the red camera was really the first 4K digital camera that film productions could get their hands on. So it was called uh, so it's from a company called Red. And Peter Jackson was the first director that would create a project with them. And it was a you know a short film that he created specifically for the company. And since then, they basically redefined Hollywood. And they're kind of the norm now. And if you watch you know videos from any of the big YouTubers like MKBHD or iJustine or you know Jonathan Morris and any of these people, they all have reds. And back in the day, reds used to cost as much as a house. So the guy that went off to be a directing fellow at American Film Institute and someone else that I was working with, they both happened to get reds at launch because they could spend as much as a, as a house on a camera and they were directors they didn't want to know how these things work they didn't need to know so me kind of being the post-production guy and ultimately becoming an on-set workflow person i learned how the camera worked i learned how to get the footage off the cards transcode it i could see a camera shooting and know whether or not it was going to die and in the early days reliability wasn't that great and i just kind of became the guy that knew how these damn things worked. And so I was consulting a lot on Red Productions, you know, known as the Red Whisperer, because I just knew everything about them and figured it out on the fly. I mean, there was no real support network for these things. No one had them. So we just kind of had to figure it out by the seat of our pants on a really expensive production on set. And so worked with those cameras for years. And then that's kind of what led into me working with Beyonce. So we were shooting a commercial, you know, a real estate commercial completely unrelated in New York City. And on the last day of the shoot, I got a message from the director of the Beyonce project saying, we've got 10 reds on the floor at a place called Off Hollywood, and we don't know how to set them up. And <laughs> my partner and I went over there, and we got all the cameras on the same firmware version. We set them up so they could do multicam shoots, and we got them all up and running at the facility or at the location, which was Rosen Ballroom in New York City, which I think is closed now. And we got those things up and running for four nights and, you know, in, in a day, basically, uh, wow. for a live via satellite, you know, quote unquote, live via satellite segment for the Michael Jackson tribute concert. You know, we got through that shoot and it was the first 10 red multicam shoot ever. And we did it for Beyonce. And, you know, that just kind of we hacked that shit together. It wasn't supposed to work. And it did. So, I mean, you know, all this stuff, it's, you know, you learn by doing Right. You learn by throwing yourself into really uncomfortable situations and just saying, fuck it, let's just figure it out. So, I mean, that's kind of led me from thing to thing and it hasn't failed me yet. So. <laughs> now, you, you founded a studio back then, Last Step Studios. And based on what I've heard, like your current studio kind of evolved out of that over the course of a weekend. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I've had multiple studios, I guess, multiple studios under different names. And I keep on using up all the cool names. That's why it's Andre Elijah Mercer now, because I just can't come up <laughs> with any more cool names that, you know, should be the name of a company. So, I mean, in that company, I founded it with a, another student from Ryerson, and we wanted to make video games. And on day one, we realized, oh, crap, video games are very expensive to make, very expensive. And we don't have money because we're broke students. And so we pivoted immediately to doing architectural visualization work using real-time engines. And so it was initially Unreal Engine. The work that we were creating in Unreal, you know, it looked cool. It was realistic looking. And, you know, we could change materials on on couches and our walls and stuff. And that impressed some people. But they ultimately came to us for more traditional rendering work or dollhouse renderings and, you know, some static renderings, that sort of thing. Because game engines were kind of so new to the real estate market, it wasn't, you know, it didn't really get a lot of pickup. Ultimately, you know, I think we wanted to do different things. I saw the demo of the HoloLens, uh, I think it was at E3, uh, where they showed off the Minecraft demo in AR. And I thought that was really kind of awe-inspiring. And I wanted to try my hand at making something like that. You know, I didn't have the computers to do it. I didn't have the know-how to do it. I just wanted to do it. And at the same time, you know, the Oculus Kickstarter had popped off. And, you know, VR was trying to find its footing with Palmer at the helm. And there was something new and sexy and crazy about it that I really wanted to be part of. 
And it just reminded me of the same energy of like so many other things that I chased over the years, whether it was, you know, doing the post-production stuff and Final Cut or, you know, I was getting hands-on time with the Red. It was just kind of new and unexplored and I wanted in. And I saw it. I saw it pretty clearly in my head what it could be. And I just figured I had a chance. So like literally two founders kind of going in different directions and we dissolved the company over a weekend. And by Monday, my new company was spun up and I started, you know, trying to land that kind of work. And so tried to figure out, you know, ways to differentiate myself from everyone else. And uh, I didn't really know what to do. And I had never 3D modeled in my life. I was the engine guy. My old co-founder was the, was the modeler. And I figured, you know what, if I'm going to do anything, I'm just going to go build Drake's house and see what happens. And so I learned to 3D model and I built out Drake's house, which I think was like, I don't remember now, I think it's like 25,000 square feet or something ridiculous like that. His new house, uh, the floor plans had leaked on the BBC. And um, mm-hmm. I had the floor plans and I built it out. <laughs> and I made a website for it, sent it out to a couple places, a couple media outlets. It wasn't anything, you know, I didn't do a full court press for it or anything. And all of a sudden, everyone picked up this goddamn house and there were stories everywhere. Teen Vogue picked it up and uh, The Verge or Polygon picked it up, like everyone, you know, and I got millions of views in kind of record time and everyone started hitting me up, you know, platforms and technology companies and other brands. And they're like, what are you going to do with this thing? You know, can you do product placement in this house? Can we, you know, roll it out to our platform, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of, you know, it took on a life of its own for, for a while there trying to figure out what it could be. And that kind of gave me the legitimacy in a weird way. You know, it was a horrible project, technically. My computers were really weak, so I couldn't render shadows properly, couldn't render post-processing. You know, my processors were two weak, so I couldn't even bake the shadows. It was, like, god-awful. <laughs> um, but again, you know, you, you have a big name like Drake, who is he's huge now, but he was big then. You take his name, and then you add on something crazy like VR, and all of a sudden, you know, that's, like, the perfect combination there for some headlines. And so from there, you know, I got a bunch of companies and agencies reaching out to me to do some work and then created the first new home sales suite in real estate for Canada off the back of that. And it actually happened to be for Drake's agency, uh, the agency that represented him for a bunch of stuff and worked with him for a bunch of stuff. They hit me up to, to do the first new home sales suite in Canada using VR. And so we rolled that out and prospective home buyers actually went into VR in, this, in the sales office and you know checked out their future homes. And so we rolled those out. And then did some stuff out of Miami, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing VR for real estate, right? The thing that I was intending to do with my old co-founder, mm-hmm. I'm now doing on my own. And from there, other companies started reaching, like startups started reaching out to me, saying, can you prototype ideas of ours? Because we don't have the talent in-house. So that, you know, was a stepping stone. And then suddenly, bigger companies are more amenable to me working on their stuff, or they're reaching out. Pretty gradual growth until a couple years ago. You know, Epic Games gave me a mega grant for an educational project that I've been working on called Innocence in the Fire. And that was the first major co-sign that I ever got. And they're really great. And so as soon as I announced, hey, guys, I got an Epic mega grant, bam, you know, life went into into overdrive and Snap took me in, has been really supportive. And they keep on shining a light on me with, you know, different profiles and different features at the conferences and stuff. And then now, you know, I'm working with Meta, I'm working with some other companies. So, I mean, it's been the last couple of years of kind of everything's gone into overdrive, which I really love and appreciate. But yeah, it took a minute to and some craftiness to get to get in position for that in the first place. I mean, it sounds like things really kind of snowballed after that. I think it was Drizzy Manor. That was what you called it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Things kind of just snowballed after that. Yeah. And now you're you're also on the ARVR program advisory board at Vancouver Film School. Like, how has that experience been for you kind of, in a way, entering back into education, although not as a student this time, of course? Here we've got a school that has some really amazing graduates, right? We've got Neil Blomkamp went there. End of story. Mm-hmm. Neil Blomkamp. It's done. It's a lock. We've got this really amazing traditional film school that wants to explore new media and a new platform and and they've really crafted amazing programs and talent to kind of foster that growth so initially there was a buddy of mine that was teaching there he had me just give a guest lecture you know the students were really into it they asked really great questions and i was i was honestly impressed because i think certainly myself and my peers weren't solid students like they were when we were younger you know just talking to the staff and the program coordinator I was like, wow, this is this is legit. Let's figure it out. They just kept on coming back to to give talks and 
for the project that ended up getting the Epic Maker Grant, we actually used uh, some of the students for like their thesis project. We let them build a prototype of the game. The work was really great. And so, you know, just in conversations of how do you teach the next wave of people, like how to get into the space and kind of teach them to prepare for the future, that just kind of became the onboarding to bring me in as advisor for the program. And it's been great. They take our ideas seriously. The students that they have are amazing. The talent they have teaching, they're all practicing professionals. It's not those who can't teach. It's like, that's not the situation here. They're all professionals in the space. They're all people I work with in the space doing really dope shit. And so the students are really lucky. I wish all these teachers were at Ryerson when I was there because, you know, maybe I take something from it. But no, it's been a really great experience kind of working with the school and seeing the impact that it's had on these students and seeing where they land after they graduate has been really dope. Now, you've been quoted as saying that your biggest goal for the future is to set the standard for interactive and immersive education. Like, where does the passion for that goal come from? I mean, I went to private school when I was a kid, and the best we had were VHSs and DVDs that were horribly boring. And, you know, I think that if you're paying that much intuition, maybe there should be a better learning experience there. And I think, you know, with the accessibility of a MetaQuest or, you know, Snap on your phone, the access, the level of access to content has never been more amazing and higher. And I think that if we, instead of doing shooty-shooty games all the time, we tried to engage people in new concepts and ideas and reinforce learnings, I think we'd be further along. So I just think ultimately that if we were to uh, use all these skills to build something dope, maybe the future has a chance, particularly around climate education, right? You know, we keep on putting people into videos of this is a polar bear dying (laughs) or this is the world on fire. And it hasn't really made enough of an impact, right? You just kind of see the trajectory that the world is on. It's not great. So I think that if we were to engage people more and actually show them the effects of their actions in a digital environment or in a simulation, that maybe it'll hit different. The studies have proven that if you experience things in VR, your attention is way higher, right? You understand concepts way more clearly um, in VR. And I think that if we were to use that for some good, maybe the world would be on a better path. So that's just kind of one of my weird altruistic things. But I'm hoping that by making these games that are mainstream and onboard more users and get more people there, there's like a viable path to creating, you know, really dope, immersive content for education. And then maybe we can kind of turn this world around in a decade from now. That's the hope anyway. Now, your career to date, I mean, as you've described it just in this interview, has been extremely prolific. Who are some of the people that have really kind of helped you out over the years, whether it's been like mentors, peers, anyone? I mean, everyone, man. I think this whole industry, I will say the the immersive industry is more open and friendly and awesome than any other industry I've been part of. I think at the at the heart of it, we're all a bunch of misfits trying to find our way and trying to lock in and create the future that we all want. And so it's been ultimately way more collaborative than any other industry I've been part of. So it doesn't really matter if it's a major executive at a company that's doing immersive stuff or it's a lowly developer that specializes in some weird thing. The whole industry has been really collaborative and really cool. And there's you basically check your ego at the door. So to single anyone out would be kind of weird because like I've literally gone up to the top execs at Meta, formerly Facebook, and been like, hey, I really want a meeting with so-and-so. And And then they send a message and the next day I get a meeting with that person. It's just one of these things. I think VR and AR kind of, I don't think anyone who that's in it, like really in it, isn't a geek. (laughs) I think we all identify with each (laughs) other in really profound ways. And so that's, you know, there's a level of humility involved in the industry that's been really great. You see inside of, you know, industry slacks and discord groups and everything, you know, we're all sharing information. We're all sharing learnings. We're all helping refine each other's pitches and play testing each other's games and applications. And as much as, you know, it's Andre Elijah immersive, there's you know a lot of people on my team and there's a lot of people uh, not on my team that have helped out and helped to get us where we are now. So it's really one of those things, you know, it takes a, it takes a village to raise a kid. So I think we're no different. <laughs> If there's somebody that's out there that's been listening to this and they want to follow in your footsteps, whether it's like, I would imagine just getting into this world of AR and VR, like what advice would you give them? I would say just do it. I don't want to sound flippant with that, but this is one of those industries where it doesn't take a whole lot 
to be able to get in and start building. When I worked in film years ago, you know, you needed you needed more than a handy cam to have a good looking image. You needed more than just iMovie to have a really solid edit and, and final delivery, right? You need the color correcting and all that sort of stuff. And so you have all the software and hardware considerations and all that. With AR and VR, it's, you need a, a not so powerful computer and a $300 headset and you're off to the races. Game engines are free. Unity and Unreal are free. They have lots of example projects and tutorials online that you can follow to get your find your footing and start building. You don't need a powerful computer because these headsets are all running mobile parts. So you're not pushing for photorealism for these projects. So I think, you know, for under a grand, ultimately, you can be set up and you can start building. And so I think that removes a lot of the barriers and a lot of the excuses as to why you can't get into it. So I would say, like, literally just Google some of your favorite games and how to rebuild some of those mechanics. You know, there's literally YouTube channels that just show you in Unreal or in Unity how to build mechanics from games that we all play and like. Learning about the interaction systems and, you know, how to set up a project and how to compile. Like, this is all stuff that's available at your fingertips. So I think, you know, more than ever in this industry, you know, you want to do it. You can just go ahead and do it. You don't need to ask for permission. There's no one gatekeeping any crazy hardware or software. You know, it's just, you can literally just start. What do you think you would have went into if you didn't get into this field? <laughs> I ask myself that a lot. For a while, I wanted to be an entertainment and intellectual property lawyer. And for a while, I wanted to be a robotics engineer. So, And for a while, I also wanted to be a professional jazz trumpet player. I played trumpet for a number of years. So, nice. I mean, it was going to be one of those three things. Nice. So given how fast all of this is is progressing, the technology and everything, like where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what do you want to be doing? I'm going to be shipping a number of games in the next two or three years and then probably go investor. My team members know that I, I can maintain this pace for a couple more years. They're all young. Um, <laughs> they got, got a lot longer to go. And I want to be the first check-in on their companies when they go and do their own thing. And I'm, you know, I'm telling them, I tell them all the time, you know, I need you guys for, to bang out these games on these projects and we're going to do them together and you're going to have them to your name and it's going to be great. And then you're going to go out and you're going to do your own thing and you're going to stomp all over me and it'll be fun. I just want to be the one to fund you. So, you know, I really want to be kind of the one to open some doors for them uh, once they're done with my stuff and just kind of help the next, you know, generation. I think, I think there's been this whole thing since early web days and then we saw the shift to the app store and everything, and all these tech companies, you know, you need to be, there's a certain progression, right? And you need to go get your tech crunch articles and your press and go get your venture capital and all this sort of stuff. And I think there's other ways to do that. You know, I think if you're really good at shipping products and projects that connect with people, there's a different way forward. And so I just want to kind of impart my wisdom on these people. And, you know, I know a lot of people and look at my rejected section. I know a lot of people. So if there's a way for me to kind of open some doors and, and connect some dots for folks, then I think that's kind of the position I want to be in a couple of years and not necessarily shipping a project for a brand every you know month, month and a half and deal with these crazy ass hours. I'm getting old. <laughs> and you got kids. And I got kids. I got to watch them grow up and, you know, do after school activities with them. You know, yeah. They're older and stuff. So, yeah. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and your work and everything online? Yeah. I mean, my website is www.andreelijah.com and my Twitter is Andre Elijah. So if you want some, you know, industry hot takes, that's probably the place to go. And then, yeah, my website, that's where you know, the portfolio lies. And if you want to know the work that we've done or the stuff we pitched in the rejected section, it's all there. Sounds good. Well, Andre, Elijah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, just hearing this kind of like, I don't know, almost this whirlwind of activity that you've got going on, not just with what you're doing now with the studio, but what you plan to do in the future and really how... You've had this passion to do this for such a long time. I think it, it really kind of points to the fact that while these technologies, you know, VR, for instance, have taken a long time to kind of get off the ground, there's been this constant steady push by people like you to really push things into the not just the mainstream, but to the next level to create experiences that, you know, in the future we'll be talking about for years and years to come. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. 
appreciate you, dude. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. Big, big thanks to Andre Elijah. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Andre and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by R.J. Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you. So please hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Just search for revision path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>